And Philip Grindel joins me now with more. Thank you so much for your time. No, it's an absolute pleasure. For a lot of people from outside of London, they look at this this idea of having you know several hundred state visits happen all at once and think that must be the most daunting security challenge that there could possibly be. Um, from your point of view, just how daunting is it? Well, it's quite clearly a significant event. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the planning for this has been has been going on for some years, if not decades, because of course we, you know, the Metropolitan Police and, and London have to plan for a royal funeral at any time. We have no idea when the monarch's going to die. Clearly, as they get older, there's there's the likelihood increases, but the planning has been in place for some years. We have royal events every day. Um, and we have significant royal events several times a year. So some of it is about scaling. Some of it is about the complexities. I mean, you know, we, we, the, the challenges now, I guess, this week really are more about things like the majority of the world, the, you know, the world's leaders and religious leaders and, and, and political leaders are all going to be in London. So that, of course, presents it additional issues outside of the, the, the sort of royal footprint of the event. Um, clearly, there are significant crowds. Clearly, we haven't, we wouldn't normally have a queue of six miles waiting to go into the Palace of Westminster to, to, to lie, uh, to watch the, the, the monarch's body lying in state. So there are some, there are some differences, but of course, there's lots of similarities. And so there's a plan in place. It, it evolves. It, 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 it's flexible. Um, what you see out on the ground is a, is a small element of a, of a far larger plan. Um, but also, we, you know, it's got to be a plan that allows the public to enjoy the event. It can't be so regimented that it, it restricts everyone from doing anything. And we also, in the, in, you know, we encourage the, the crowd to become part of that security footprint, so that if they do see something that they're not happy with, then there are scouting organisations, as, as, as in the Girl Guides or the Cub Scouts, that they're on duty. There's there's police officers, there's there's volunteers, there's lots of elements there that are there to, to see what if something stands out of place or is there a bag being left somewhere or has someone collapsed. It's, it's not just um, the security forces, if you like, in terms of the police, etc., that are that are working. There is there's a whole um, there's a whole echelon of, of different organizations supporting it. I imagine it's a bit like the iceberg theory, right? You see 10% of it and 90% of it is underwater. Uh, what is going on, without giving away too much, what is going on behind the scenes that you won't see if you're out on the streets of London? There's obviously an operations room that, that controls the entire operation. Um, but then you'll have a coordinated one above that with the head of the fire service, head of the paramedics and ambulance services, head of the civil service, and, and all the kind of various main stakeholders there rather, you know, kind of pushing pieces around like a large chessboard almost in terms of where they're moving their assets. Every morning there'll be there'll be a significant search presence. So they'll be routinely searching the routes that people will be going on in particular at strategic locations. They'll be I mean if you looked I mean, you're in London so you may have heard it that you know three o'clock this morning there'll have been a rehearsal with all the various troops uh, and uh, other issues out and about. Um, there will of course be covert activities going on in terms of known uh, people of concern that might be con surveillance conducted on them. There is clearly an intelli whole intelligence issue around GCHQ and the and our intelligence services, you know, working with people like CSIS and, and the CIA and others as well to see what is the chatter going on around the world? Is, is there something that 
that CSIS might be aware of that we're not aware of. And because we're partners and what have you, you know, there'll be a sharing of intelligence and information about, you know, we're aware that we've heard this. And so there's a lot of that going on in the background at a very global strategic level. Um, but, you know, on the ground, if you're, if you're a member of public, the idea is that, you you know, the day is about, um, or, the, or the period, because it's a 10-day period, really, it's very much about providing a safe place for everyone to enjoy it. Um, and, and you know, enjoy it in terms of being able to, to, able to show their respect and everything else. I've, I've noticed, I mean, I was here during the Olympics, I was here for the Diamond Jubilee. How does it compare to security for something like the Olympic Games? Because a lot was made then about the security. Obviously, the, the ISIS threat was, was more pronounced, at least we talked about it more in 2012. Uh, but how is it compared to something like the Olympics? Well, it's slightly different in terms of uh, the Olympics across a wider footprint. And you had um, clearly all the athletes and, and, and the various different countries here being represented. And therefore, um, you know, some of them may not be countries that you would necessarily... Uh, want here um, uh, and certainly you know th- th- there's been news articles this today and yesterday around whether the Chinese uh, should be invited or not invited mm-hmm. at the Olympics they have a right to be here because they're, they're an Olympic country so there's some different complexities there um, probably one of the more uh, significant differences is that you know any adversary knows that a certain time at a, on Monday every single world leader is going to be in one place so clearly that that presents an opportunity uh, but also it, it allows us in the UK to concentrate our assets in one place. And whereas at the Olympics, you might have had those people spread across different locations, watching different sports, staying in different hotels, traveling around, having embassy you know, functions and all sorts of things. And the difference also is the Olympics was, you know, the presence of the Olympics was known months and years in advance. This event has only been known about really for the last week. And so any adversary that's looking to plan a significant attack has only got a short period of time in which to do so. So I guess that's both an advantage uh, for the police as well as a disadvantage for anyone who may want to do harm. It's it's obviously a challenge for for security to to prepare that quickly, but it's also a challenge for anyone uh, who poses a threat to plan that quickly. How have the threat assessments changed over time? Because I realize you were involved in the aftermath of the... um, the assassination of, of British MP Joe Cox. There must be concerns. We talk about it in Canada too about lone wolf attacks being the no the new uh, big concern for security these days. Yeah, I think that's the major change. I think you know certainly when we go back to when the Olympics was 2012, we were we were more in you know as you, as you mentioned around ISIS and AQ and other other organised terrorist groups. We are far more focused now on on the lone actor. Um, self-motivated uh, attacks, which whilst they always attribute themselves to, you know, I'm supporting this or that organisation, they rarely are. They're normally just individuals that are um, have a particular fixation or, or, or uh, cause they're following. So the actual threat methodology has changed, clearly, um, but what you will see is lots of road closures, as an example. So one of the main um, uh, methods of attack is obviously with vehicles to drive through crowds and what have you. That'll be severely restricted by a uh, by what's called vehicle uh, hostile vehicle mitigation system. So you'll see lots of road closes, and it'll look fairly innocuous. But actually, there's you know you could you know the, the, the systems are such that you can drive a fully laden lorry at that at those barriers, and the, and the barrier will stop it dead. So uh, these are these are these are counter terrorist measures all around them. 
Then you've got, of course, the greater threat of the lone actor that goes in. And if we look at the news this morning, we've seen two police officers in, in the centre of London, in, in Leicester Square, being attacked with a knife. Uh, one of them is critically ill in hospital as we speak. And so, you know, that's a very difficult thing to protect against because are we going to search every single person that comes into the parking area or into the into the queuing area? That's very different and that's very difficult. Um, so, you know, whenever you're whenever you're assessing risk or assessing threat, there there is an acceptance that there is a level you can't manage. You, you, you know, that's that's something that we ask the public to be aware about. That's why we've got lots of volunteers around. So if anyone does appear to be acting suspiciously, if anyone does appear to be worried about something else, if everyone's looking one way and someone's looking the other way, well, why are they looking the other way? Um, so that's probably the greater threat in terms of that low NAPTA threat, you know, large crowds, uh, an opportunity for them to do something of that nature. I've been reading a lot about the security plans in place and some of the ways that um, that uh, the UK is hoping that foreign dignitaries will accept certain things, such as riding to the Abbey uh, by bus and so forth, just to, as you were mentioning, to try and protect access. How much pushback do you get in these security arrangements from countries such as the US? Obviously, you have uh, a lot of concerns about their own security arrangements, and they like to handle their own thing, even when they're abroad. We have good relationships with all those various organizations. And you're right to identify the US president scenario because he probably will be the anomaly in all this in terms of the threat against him is is probably different to, to most other um, principal leaders. And, and as I understand it, he won't be traveling in the same convoy as everyone else. He'll be traveling in what they call the beast and, and, and flying all that over, et cetera. But even then, there are limitations on what the Americans do here. We don't allow them to have free reign. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, you know, there is a, a conversation that's had around how many armed assets you're going to have and, and actually what are you allowed to do. Um, so it's not a case of them imposing what they are going to do. It's not a case of anyone imposing what they're going to do. It's an agreement between us and every nation, between us and Canada and what have you around. You know, what are the specific security arrangements around your leadership and, and what do we think you need, what do you think we need and what are, what are we going to allow you to have? Um, but I think in an occasion like this, I think it's quite different, and I think most, most, if not all, um, will be fairly um, compliant and receptive to what's happening. It's a very short period. Most people will probably only be here for two days. They're only really going to one event, probably, or maybe two events. And so they're not here for some publicity event. They're here very specifically for a funeral of a monarch, and therefore that's really what they're here for. They're not here to maybe anything having dinners and PR exercises. So. Um, I, I don't anticipate there being any huge issues. There are always, there are always, um, there's always something that happens. Somebody forgets a bag or loses a bag or or doesn't get to the right place on time. Um, you know, you're never going to, you know, it is rather like herding cats at times, but, you're, but, you know, fundamentally, if they're not there at a certain time, they're not coming in. Um, and that will be the plan. So very no very little flexibility, obviously. If you if you don't make it according to the way it's planned, you're out because it has to be that way. Well, if you think about the actual the actual um, event itself on Monday, you know it's a very coordinated plan with specific things happening, and um, you know it'll be lots of pageantry that goes with that. Now, if you are a if you are a leader of some country and you're not on that bus at the right time. If you think you're going to drive there on your own, you won't get anywhere near it and you won't be allowed to the cordons. And if you turn up at a policeman and say, I'm the, you know, I'm the president of wherever, you'll probably be told, well, that's sorry, you're late. Um, and you certainly won't be allowed to disrupt any of the any of the plans that are in place, whoever you are. So 
I think what we'll see is I think there'll be, a, you know, there'll be lots of work again in the background. You, I think everyone will be on time. Everyone will be in place quite early, I think, um, so that we, we can make sure that everything is then locked down. Um, and I don't anticipate any problems. And just in terms of the ability to sort of uh, protest, for instance, we've seen that come up this week. Is there still room for some sort of um, some sort of voices of, of discontent? Because depending on the leaders that will be there, clearly there are people who will want to be heard while they're here. Uh, how does that? How do you balance those two things? Sort of the the right to protest versus the the need for this for tight security on Monday. Well, of course, you know we we have had a significant debate about that in the last few days, and there's been individuals who have been arrested for protesting around our own monarchy, for instance. So we have to balance the the, the lawful right in the UK to protest and have freedom of speech, and and, and that will, will be allowed to happen. But where it happens might be controlled. Um, now, that's not going to mean that every person's going to be searched to see whether they've got a banner on them that says something about you know, a particular individual. But we have seen individuals taken out of crowded environments who have been perhaps chanting something or perhaps holding up a banner and, and and really rather perversely that's for their own safety because what we saw in Edinburgh as an example in Scotland is an individual that was making comments towards a particular member of the royal family um, and he was actually knocked to the ground by somebody um, so we have this we have this common law offence in the United Kingdom called breach of the peace and you can be arrested and removed from an area because you are you are uh, causing a breach of the peace most of the mainstream sort of organised protests, if you like, will actually engage with the police. We have what's called protest liaison teams. So we will actually say, you know, you're absolutely OK to protest, but you need to be doing it in these particular areas. And that's not hidden away somewhere. But clearly what we don't want to do is end up with scuffles and fights in the crowds. Um, and so that, that, that some of that will be managed. There will, of course, be some that try and break the barriers and try and raise publicity. And you'll notice that in the way that the policing works, the police will face the crowd and the military face inwards towards the, the actual event. Um, and so the police's job is, is yes, to look, look out for the public, but look out for those sort of things as well. But if someone tries to break the, the barrier, then they'll be tackled by either the police or the military um, and they'll be, ta- they'll be arrested and taken away. I imagine that even for the most seasoned security expert that come the end of Monday, come Tuesday, when all the dignitaries are gone, that everyone breathes a sigh of relief, no matter what, though, I would think. Oh, huge. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it's a, you know, many of the police officers that are, that are, that are you'll see here in London on um, now, for instance, but right the way through to sort of, you know, probably Monday evening have been shipped in from around the country. So they're not all metropolitan police officers from London. Many of the police officers that you'll see here um, will not be going home for three days. They'll be sleeping in various places and, and you know, working very long hours. And that will include all those behind the scenes who are who are planning and, and, and running the, te- the communications and everything else that's going on. So I think, um, you know, come Tuesday, when there's a sort of debrief and they, they pass themselves all on the back, hopefully, I think there'll be a lot of tired people um, who go home and probably have a good night's sleep for, for the first time in some, in some time. But but that's the responsibility they hold. And... and um, you know, I you know, I, I know having been involved in them that it's it's really hard work, but it's also very rewarding when you when you have an event that successfully goes on. And and the beauty of it is that it seems like nothing's happening. Um because because nothing does happen. Um and so people often say, Well, you didn't need all that because nothing happened. But that but it nothing happened because we had all that. So it's it's that kind of balance between the two. And so 
yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll be looking forward to Tuesday morning and hopefully, desperately hoping that nothing has happened and everyone's had a good time or, or being able to um, just to pay their respects and, and all the dignitaries have flown home. Philip Grindel, thank you so much for your insight on this. Much appreciated. My pleasure.